Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to begin with this story, though. And it's been bothering me, well, since I first heard about it. And it has to do with veterans of Canada's military who have been prescribed medical marijuana. We're talking about men and women who are dealing with PTSD, who are dealing with significant um, pain issues, chronic pain issues, which relate to, um, to injuries and wounds, perhaps. But PTSD is one of the core issues for which, at least I understand, that medical marijuana has been prescribed. Now, the federal auditor general has raised concerns that the program would cost them $75 million dollars in calendar year 2016 and uh, 75 million they said that in the first year 0809 there were only five veterans who had been prescribed medical marijuana at a cost of $19,088 and from April to September of this year 3,071 vets had been prescribed mer- medical marijuana by a small number of doctors and the cost was 31 million So the feds say that as of the 21st of May of next year, they're going to limit the amount of medical marijuana the federal government will underwrite for Canadian military veterans from 10 grams to 3 grams per day with a maximum cost of $8.50 per gram. And uh, the question is, is 3 grams enough for the men and the women from the forces? Ten is too much, we're told. Uh, The average person who is prescribed medical marijuana by a doctor gets, I understand, in the neighborhood of 1.5 to 2 grams per day. But the situation is often different for members of the military. We're joined by Sergeant Major Barry Westholm, retired. Um, Sergeant Major Westholm, 31 years in the Canadian military, including the Airborne Regiment, He was the sergeant major at the Joint Personnel um, Service Unit in in eastern Ontario, and he resigned from that unit over what he saw was not being done for the men and the women in the military. It is there to serve their needs and to help them with issues such as PTSD, and Sergeant Major Westholm resigned over what he saw. He's talked to us about that in the past, and uh, Barry, it's good to have you back with us, sir. Thank you for the time. Thanks for the invite, Roy. Also joining us is Peter Stauffer, former NDP Member of Parliament from uh, Nova Scotia, strong supporter of the military for many years. But, Peter, thank you for the time, but I un- understand that you agree with the federal government's decision on this one. Well, no, I never agreed on it. All I basically said is that 10 grams from my initial interview, and thank you, by the way, for the opportunity, is an awful lot. But that is between a doctor and his patient. It's not up for me or anyone else to determine what a doctor subscribes to a veteran. My argument has always been, besides medical cannabis, is the veteran being offered other treatment programs to assist them on their path to wellness? For example, psychiatric, other medical services, nutrition, diet, exercise, uh, massage therapy, um, you know, uh, PTS service dogs, all of these things that are additional services in lieu, and also in... Um, on top of medical cannabis. So that was my argument all along. Is the person receiving the other benefits as well? And, and of course, the one point that I need to make, if the veterans are using medical cannabis, that means that a lot of them are not using other pharmaceuticals, which means that the government is saving money on that aspect. So I'm not quite sure how they come about their figures. It would be interesting when the uh, further details come down the road. Well, Peter, it seems suspicious to me. When the $75 million figure is raised by the Auditor General and subsequent to that, the amount that the federal government will pay for veterans for medical marijuana is dramatically reduced and the cost is immediately, um, you know, the the maximum is established at $8.50. It looks to me like it's at least somewhat and maybe primarily about money. It may very well be, but uh, again, I was never informed of this. I was never, you know, they never asked for my opinion on this one. It'll be up to the veteran community and the medical community to determine the best way to move forward on this one. Uh, But again, it would be the government that have to answer the motives as to why they did what they did. 
Uh, I know there's mixed reaction through the veteran community and their families right across the country, and it is something we're watching very closely. Sergeant Major Westholm, what's it about as far as you're concerned? What, well, what's this all about? I'd just like to speak to some things uh, that Peter brought forward, which are, are, are right on the money. Now, when I was in the Joint Personnel Support Unit, one of the things that uh, we tried to do as the staff there was to open up different, uh, different uh, holistic approaches to uh, trauma treatment. Um, but to try to do anything like that was a battle the entire way. Uh, uh, equine therapy, no, it's not, it's not proven. You know, uh, there's too much risk. What if, what, if, what if the horse steps on a guy's foot? I'd say, well, he's got no foot. And they say, well, what if he steps on the other foot? That's even worse. He doesn't have two feet. He's got two, two fake limbs. Oh, well, those are owned by the government. We can't take that risk. And the same thing goes for the dietary thing, uh, yoga, different methods out there that, that are available, well known to be used, were denied. All these soldiers that were transitioning out of the Canadian forces into civilian life. And I ran into some great people that are, are pulling out all the stops to get this uh, treatment to the uh, Canadian forces injured people that are transitioning. Uh, I'm going to say a couple names. Natasha Scabola is one of them. She's been trying for years to get uh, holistic treatments uh, and different uh, treatments that are well known across the, the globe to our injured soldiers. The answer has always been no. Most re- recently, uh, Brenda Norley, she's been trying the same thing. Every answer all the time is no. And this has been going on since the inception of the JPSU back in 2009. So what's going on here, I think, is you're releasing people from a broken unit that's just not creative enough to allow things that aren't absolutely regimented, and then once they get out, they're on their own, and they're going to try to find something that that makes it through the day. What they found is cannabis. It works. And now what they've done, especially the way they did it, I think it's quite, quite cruel, is to pull the rug out from these people, say, no, that's the end of it. And I personally have never heard of any prescription drug being limited by a minister. I mean, if this was an opiate, would he be limiting the opiate? No. If it was a something for uh, your, your muscle, a muscle laxer, would there be a limit? No. It has to do specifically with cannabis. And this is not a new thing. The Canadian Forces always sort of looks at like, oh, this has just popped up and now we're unprepared. Back in 2014, uh, the Canadian Forces uh, hospital staff were ordered to research this, but apparently they didn't. So now what you're doing is you're seeing the reaping uh, what they sowed, all this inaction, all this sort of really abuse of veterans transitioning to civilian life, they've found way, a way to cope where the system failed them at every turn. It happens to be cannabis. And, and that's the situation we have right now. And now there's a, a shockwave going through the veteran community. Uh, they're scared. I, I watched one guy on, on um, Facebook the other day. His voice is shaking, and he's, he's found something that works. He got off uh, very s- serious opioids, and now he's looking at going back. Um, I just, honestly, I don't get it. But like right. I say, nothing like this is new. We've tried it all for years, and the Canadian Forces turns, turns their back on these people. And now, again, Veterans Affairs is pulling the rug from underneath them. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Bell Castro, as you know by now, passed away at age 90. And there's been a lot of controversy about Mr. Castro over the decades that he was in power in Cuba. Here's an email that I received from John to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Here's a quote. This is what Justin Trudeau said, and John quotes him, quotes our prime minister, who said, Fidel Castro was a larger-than-life leader who served his people for almost half a century. A legendary revolutionary and orator, Mr. Castro made a significant improvement to the education and health care of his island nation. End quote. Those are the words of Justin Trudeau. John writes, any respect I had for Justin Trudeau is now gone. And what I've seen on Twitter, and specifically what I've seen on email, and about the, uh, the death of Fidel Castro, and the response by our prime minister has not been favorably disposed toward the prime minister, because we know that Mr. Castro has had a history of, well, treating his island people extremely badly. And uh, thousands and thousands of them braved the 90 miles of of sea between Cuba and and Florida on rickety rafts and boats to try to get away from from Castro. 
But uh, according to Mr. Trudeau, who's a remarkable, legendary revolutionary, Martin Collicutt, former Canadian ambassador to Syria and Lebanon. He spent much time with us on this program over the years. And Martin was also director for Latin American Relations with Foreign Affairs Canada. He's back with us. Hi, Martin. Hi. How are you, uh, Roy? I'm, I'm well. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. When you, uh, when you look at the 60 years or so of, of uh, Castro's legacy as the dictator in Cuba, what do you think, how do you assess his his performance. What do you think his legacy should be? Well, obviously he was uh, um, uh, a very interesting and impressive leader, but um, when Justin Trudeau expresses uh, deep condolences uh, on behalf of all Canadians, that's not quite accurate. Some uh, are very unhappy with the Castro's track record. Maxim Bernier, who's one of the leaders, can, uh, candidates for leadership and the Conservatives he said he was a despicable dictator who killed and imprisoned thousands of innocents and drove away in exile more than a million. So uh, he is, uh, and, and Justin Trudeau did acknowledge he was um, a controversial figure, but on the whole, his statements were uh, rather effusive in praise of uh, Castro. In the United States, it's a bit mixed. Uh, there are Apparently, the expatriate Cuban community, which is much more important there than it is in Canada, uh, are very, very happy in celebrating the passage of uh, Fidel Castro. So he's certainly a very mixed bag. What were your responsibilities as director for Latin American Relations for Foreign Affairs Canada well, at the time? Well, overseeing political aspects of um, uh, uh, relationships with Latin American countries. Um, I, I'll just... To digress for a moment, um, we differed with the United States in other areas of foreign relations, and I was involved more in establishing of relations with um, with China. But in the case of China, it happened that the Americans were about to have detente with China, whereas in the case of Cuba, uh, there was nothing parallel. We simply carried on with fairly cordial relations with. Uh, uh, with with uh, Cuba right through the American embargo, um, which is still largely in effect. So it was probably a bit of an irritant, but it wasn't... Uh, our relations with Cuba weren't important enough, really, to bother the Americans that much. Did we have... Uh, did Canada have essentially positive relations with Cuba because of Pierre Trudeau's particular fascination with yeah, Fidel well, Castro? Yeah, well, certainly much more po- uh, positive than in the case of the United States. And uh, the U.S. had problems right from the start when uh, the uh, when Castro confiscated American uh, investments and wouldn't give compensation, and then they were supporting the Soviet Union's uh, military activities in Africa and a whole series of things that went on and on and on. But Canada had relatively positive relations throughout. We did raise human rights issues. We didn't completely ignore them, but... Um, Certainly, the Trudeau family had what you could almost with Castro. Uh, Castro went to Montreal to be an honorary pallbearer when Pierre Trudeau died in uh, in 19... Uh, but Martin, uh, Martin, there's no question that Fidel Castro was guilty of human rights violations, many of them against his own people. Well, absolutely. It was a dictatorship and a repressive dictatorship. Um, and uh, it still is to a large extent. It's run by the Communist Party. And uh, Fidel Castro, even after Obama's recent visits, criticized um, Obama for expecting you know, Cuba to become uh, non-communist. So he was, a, he was a revolutionary Marxist right up to the very end. When you visited Cuba, what did you find there? Well, I didn't visit it for very long. I actually went um, uh, when I was Director General for Security Affairs to talk about uh, problems with uh, hijackers who'd gone to Cuba. And I I can't claim to be that much of an expert on Cuba, but it was largely as it's depicted. The cars on the streets are 1950 um, U.S. models, and... um, it, it's true that the provision of health care facilities and education is 
uh, fairly extensive, but the whole country is basically poor. As you, it's just going to happen in a in a communist state. And I think uh, most Cubans would welcome a major opening uh, on the economic front and more uh, free market economy there. Basically, it's a very poor country, and it's remained that way uh, ever since the revolution. What do, what do you expect with the Donald Trump as president of the United States? What do you expect relations between the United States and Cuba to turn well, out to Well, very be? good question, because Trump has suggested during the... Uh, election campaign that he would continue with the opening started by Obama with Cuba, but on the other hand, he would want to renegotiate the terms, which he said of, in all sorts of areas, such as NAFTA. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly what that means uh, remains to be seen. So uh, he isn't simply uh, saying, um, you know, let's move ahead quickly with Cuba, but on the other hand, he's not saying um, we won't have some movement if we can as, as, as you said, in many areas, if we can renegotiate, you know, I, whatever I, I, that means. There's just one story, and I mentioned to you, to you on the phone earlier today. I just want to relay briefly to my listeners. A number of years ago, there were three small planes that set off from Florida, small Cessnas, like little planes, and they were dropping leaflets over Havana, just decrying the Castro regime. On the way back, they were intercepted. These little single-engine private planes were intercepted by MiG-29 fighter planes from the Cuban Air Force. And I spoke to the one man who survived. The other two, their planes, the MiGs flew around the front just to let them know they were there, and then they shot them into the ocean and they killed them. And the third one, they let go so he could take the message back to the United States. MiG-29s against single-engine small planes. That, to me, just that spoke of the, uh, of the brutality of Fidel Castro toward his own people. But Martin, it's always good to speak with you. Thank you. You provide that diplomatic perspective for us. Thank you very much, Roy. Always good talking to you. Thank you. Ambassador Martin Collicutt. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So the CBC, I think this was a good exercise. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the CBC. I, I sometimes, in some sort of weird fascination, stop on the CBC News World whatever it's called, channel, and just see how they can twist a story to, to blame Stephen Harper. No matter what happens in the world, somehow Stephen Harper gets blamed. So the CBC goes out on the streets of Toronto, the collective CBC, and they ask 20 people in Toronto. It's a good sample, 20 people. Watch the Grey Cup. Where is it being played? Let me just read you the story. I'll just read you the story, okay? I'll, this is, this is from, the, from the CBC. I'm, I'm, I'm stealing their stuff. Well, I'm not because I'm, I'm crediting them. Here's what they wrote. Uh, at the time, and this was done in October the 25th, they wrote this. So there's only a few weeks to go before the Grey Cup championship game, but on a recent night in downtown Toronto, only two of 20 people CBC News spoke to knew it was going to be played in their city. When asked, 23-year-old Torontonian Tyler Humphrey said he had no idea where the football game was going to be held. By the way, CBC, football games are not held, they're played. Not only did Ahmed Daour not know where it is, he didn't know what it is. The Grey Cup? No, no, not a clue, man, he said. Portia Biswas seemed confident she knew a little more about it. I know what it is. Hockey. No. Um, I have no idea what it is, where it is, she said. So she thought it was hockey, but she didn't know where it was being played. And then Toronto Argonaut Senior Vice President of Business Operations, Sarah Moore, admits the Canadian Football League's showcase game, scheduled for BMO Field on November the 27th, demain, tomorrow, has been somewhat overshadowed. And she blamed the Blue Jays. Give me a break. The reality is, we don't know much about our country. We do not know very much about our country any longer. Um, Our rookie prime minister who taught drama in grade school and dropped out of engineering after two years, 
and rode the family name all the way to the PMO. He, of course, has told uh, the New York Times that Canada is gone. It doesn't exist any longer. It's the world's first post-nation state. Also, we have no core identity. And so cultural events like the Grey Cup, which has been celebrated for over a hundred years in this country of ours. Calgary Stampeder fans rode a horse through the lobby of the Royal York Hotel in Toronto a few years ago. The Grey Cup has fallen off the map, at least in at least in Toronto. That's four percent of twenty people. Four percent knew what the Grey Cup is. Four percent. And 4% knew that it was being played in their city of Toronto. 4%. Prime Minister also told the New York Times, we have no core identity. Hmm. So I guess this all just fits in, doesn't it? I find this really troubling, really frustrating, really annoying, really disturbing. We live in a country where it's either a minority of provinces or it's a break-even where, where, where Canadian history is actually required as part of the school curriculum for more than one or two semesters of your school experience. We could have asked any number of things, or they could have asked any number of things. It just happened to be the Grey Cup. I wonder how many other issues we could have asked about, and, and Canadians would have no clue. I don't know, man. Grey Cup? You know, you could pick your own subject or cultural experience. Don't know. Why is it that? Why is it that you would go out on the streets of, of of Canada's largest city, and I would imagine it's probably going to be the same if you go to other cities, and people just don't know. Watch the Great Cup. I don't know, man. No idea. Where is it being played? No idea. One eight hundred two six three twenty four twenty eight. Why is that the case, Ashley in Bradford, Ontario? Hi, Ashley. Football, it's it's not to tie this into what you're saying before. It's not an identity of Canada. We've got we've got baseball and we've got hockey. We've got all these things shoved down our throats all the time, and it's great. And I love baseball. I love hockey. We don't see the football. The football's an American thing. It's an American core identity. Hold on a second. Are you telling me that the Grey Cup is a piece of Americana? Um, I'm not saying that the Grey Cup is a piece of Americana. Well, that was I'm the question. That, right, okay. I'm saying that the Grey Cup is a football game. And there's just not, it's, it's an American thing now. Football has been shoved down our throats as an American thing. I know that a lot of the people that are living in Toronto now, the young millennials, they're pretty anti-America for reasons. And it's football. No, but Ashley, Ashley, do you, Ashley, Ashley, when, when, Ashley, when 18 out of 20 people don't know what the Grey Cup is, it's not about football. That's knowing about something that's iconically Canadian, and the Grey Cup is iconically Canadian. It's okay, not, wait, nothing to do with the United States. Have you seen about the Grey Cup on, on these commercials that they show about the hockey players who went to World War II, and you've got the Blue Jays baseball everywhere on, on every channel. I've, I've never seen anything about football on television. Never seen anything about the Grey Cup on Netflix. I've never seen anything about it. And this is where we get our information now. We get, we, we learn things from media. I don't see anything about Canada's football teams and Canada's football league. Really? So, so where are these people going to even find out? They don't, they don't care. They hear football, they hear America, and it's just this. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter then. Well, it, it does a little because you can't know something if you're not told. Like you said, we don't have a core identity because no one's told us what it was. So where are we supposed to even? Why do we care? Why do we care about the Great Cup? I don't like, know I, why. I, I, I would why? like to know why should we care about? Ah, the Great probably Cup. not. Probably shouldn't. Why well, care? Why care about something that's? been uh, part of our Canadian cultural makeup for over a hundred years. The people traveling across the country, left, right, east, west, west, east, to attend these games. You know, 50, 60,000 people um, and, and televised since television has existed and broadcast since broadcasting has existed. 
It's part of our, it's part of our Canadian culture. It really is. Okay, but we need to see that. We need to see that. People, need, people involved in this need to take ownership of, of spreading that word. Well, you're, you're right about that, but I, I just find the, I find the justification for not knowing about, and it's not just the Grey Cup. This is, this is the example but we could broad-base this and run into other examples of things that are truly Canadian. And I bet you, based on just what I read in that story and thinking about it, I would suspect that we would find people would have very little, maybe a lot of people would have no idea about a significant number of iconic Canadian happenings. I agree 100%. I have a son in school, and he's learned absolutely nothing about Canada's involvement in anything. How old is your, your son? He's 10. And he's learned nothing? He's learned almost nothing. Like, I walked out of the Remembrance Day Assembly this year because we just learned about why America was great. Why America was great? Yeah, it was ridiculous. I walked out of it. Seriously? But, uh, yeah, it was... It was I, it, I wrote letters. It was disgusting. So in a Canadian school... In a Canadian school. You learned on Remembrance Day, or your, your son learned on, on Remembrance Day. Terrible thing. Because in the United States, it's Veterans Day. It's not Remembrance Day. It's Veterans Day. Yeah, terrible thing. Terrible thing. That's awful. I, I asked if he'd ever even heard of the oh. yes. He's never heard that word. That is really disturbing. It was disgusting. It was, it was embarrassing. And I feel that people need to take the ownership. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Dr. Timothy Ball is a Canadian climatologist who has long challenged the um, human-induced global warming argument, and Dr. Ball was a guest on this program many times over the years. Now, we haven't talked too much about the global warming issue. We did after COP21 with Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, but uh, we have Dr. Ball back with us. And uh, he's on his way, or will be shortly, to meet with the interim head of the Environmental Protection Agency of the United States as the transition to a Trump White House takes place. Tim, good to talk to you. It's been a few years. It has, uh, Roy, and uh, yeah, thanks for the opportunity again. And by the way, the Marrakesh uh, COP21, that was held, and there's some indication that the $12 million the King of Morocco gave to Hillary Clinton was why it was held there. Well, you and I both know, Tim, that you give $12 million just for a phone call with no quid pro quo. Everybody knows that's the way business is done. So, the, uh, uh, yeah. how do you pronounce the name of, uh, of is it Ebel or Ebel? Ebel. Yeah, Ebel. So, yeah. Myron Ebel I, is part of the, is a member of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Right. And uh, that's a uh, libertarian think tank. Yep. And, and if I understand Mr. Ebel correctly, uh, from what I've read about him, he doesn't have a lot of confidence in the human-induced global warming position taken by the UN at the IPCC. Well, and I might be responsible for that partly because... About 25 years ago, I was summoned to appear before Congress on the issue, and uh, the people at the Competitive Enterprise Institute invited me to give a presentation. And uh, Myron was there, and there were a few other people that, of course, have, have since been very skeptical, Steve Malloy, Marla Lewis, and so on. And, um, and then I've run into Mar- Myron um, at the Heartland climate conferences that have been held around North America. The most recent one I was at was in Las Vegas. And um, so I've known him for a long time. What, this came out of um, actually something happened in Australia because there's a Malcolm Roberts who there who I helped set up a thing called the Galileo Movement. And one of the things that happens, Roy, is when people start to look at the science, they can't believe what they're seeing and they think they're crazy. And so they go to look for a group to con- sort of confirm what, what they're actually seeing. And uh, so the Galileo movement was set up. Malcolm was a businessman and an engineer and uh, retired and said, no, I'm going to run for the Senate in Australia. And, of course, what's happening in Australia is happening around the world. People are abandoning the traditional uh, party names of of conservative or or labor or whatever, and they're going for regional. It's like uh, Brad uh, Wall in Saskatchewan. Yeah. And um, so a, a woman by the name of Pauline Hansen formed a, a, a 
party called the One Nation Party. Right. Which, and it's like Trump's, uh, you know, make America great again. Yeah. T- tell, so, me, yeah. T- tell me, Tim, though, let's yeah. come back to, to your visit to Washington. Yeah. Why do they want you there? What's your expectation of what they want you to do while you're visiting? What are, what are their questions for you? Well, it, it, as I said, it, 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 when we when we were in Australia, uh, Malcolm and we had challenged the, the bureaucrats to say, show us your empirical evidence that humans are causing warming. And, of course, they couldn't do it. it it's all computer model stuff. And, um, and so we had a, a, a press conference and publicly challenged them. And then that got back to uh, Myron in, in Washington. Actually, I didn't make the connection. Uh, Tony Heller did. And uh, he said, look, we want you to come to uh, Washington to uh, to show us what what you're arguing, what you're presenting. Is it your so sense going to happen? Is it your sense that the Trump administration will be moving away from Barack Obama's uh, endorsement of the UN position and of the COP21 conclusions? Oh, it, more than moving away, just abandoning completely because uh, one Roy Spencer, who's been a skeptic for a long time, and I think you know that name. Yes, he was advising uh, Cruz, Ted Cruz, in in his run, yeah. and uh, then subsequently, and also Rush Limbaugh, and and so Trump is very, very well informed on on the skeptical uh, view of the okay. science, and um, and of course he wants to cut back on the funding to the UN because he he sees that yeah. that's where so much of the uh, the world's problems are are generated. Tim. With these yeah. We'll, we'll have to. We had a bit of a problem with our phone, so we got backed up. We'll have to continue this conversation when you yeah. come back from Washington. And I, uh, I want to hear what will have happened because there have been some questions about how whether Mr. Trump is actually going to stay with his conviction that climate science is wrong. But uh, let's yeah. talk when you and I get back. I mean, yeah. when you get okay. back. I'm here, but when you get back. Okay, I will let you know. Thank, Thank you, you Dr. Tim Ball, has heading to Washington to meet with uh, Myron Ebell, the interim head of the Environmental Protection Agency. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We've been uh, talking about how the expenses for hydro, for electricity, particularly in the province of Ontario, are significantly roaring upwards and causing tremendous pain for many people, particularly rural people who have some financial challenges to deal with. And you have people who are, and you heard um, the executive director of the Bruce Gray United Way on this program last weekend talking about how these people, Canadians, are having trouble paying their rent, paying for their food, buying clothes, and paying for the heat in their hydro. And many of them are not able to do it. And so what's happening to them is they're having their hydro cut off because they have to make choices. Do they live in the dark and do they live in the cold or do they eat? That's what it boils down to fundamentally for for many of them. And the uh, Premier of Ontario, Kathleen Wynne, a week ago, confessed that she'd made a mistake. That the electricity pricing was a mistake. That it was unacceptable to her that she heard from Ontarians that they couldn't afford to buy food and to heat their homes and to light their homes at the same time. And she was going to do something about it. She was going to correct her mistake. Well, I don't know how the Premier is going to accomplish that because contracts were signed with suppliers. And we've been told that even if you cut back your expenses will continue to rise because that's the reality of the contracts that were signed. Tomorrow, we'll be talking to the um, the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario, Patrick Brown, and we'll be speaking to a, um, a woman who is affected by the hydro rates, a woman whose family is dealing with, can we afford to pay for the heat and the light? Can we at the same time afford our food? Can we at the same time afford our rent? And can we at the same time afford to buy winter clothing that we require? And the answer is no, they can't afford everything, so they're going to have to cut back somewhere, and the hydro companies cut them off. 
Now, after December the 1st, it's a little more problematic for the electricity companies to cut them off. So it's been happening leading up to December 1. But because it's been reasonably mild so far in the East, there have been fewer numbers of cutoffs, but that does not make the problem go away. So we'll have that program for you tomorrow, and we will include your phone calls. This is really, really, really disturbing. And the Premier says it's a mistake, her mistake. Not so long ago, she said Ontarians were really bad actors because they were creating problems by too many greenhouse gas emissions. Really, Premier. And then the polling shows that your popularity is around 12 or 13 percent. And I read a story in the National Post today which suggests the progressive conservatives are on the verge of a supermajority, so now you admit that you've made a mistake. Meanwhile, to the west of us in Alberta, 73% of Alberta's entrepreneurs, small and medium business owners, medium-sized business owners, have expressed in, uh, in a poll for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business their dissatisfaction with the Notley government's decision to phase out coal-generated electricity by 2030. The incoming president of the United States, Donald Trump, has indicated that coal-generated electricity is going to be back in business for the United States. Meanwhile, we have a prime minister in this country, as Brad Wall told us, the premier of Saskatchewan, told Mr. Wall that Yes, he's going to push forward with his carbon tax, but no, he hasn't done any kind of um, financial impact study. No, there's no such study that's been taking place. We're just going to have our carbon tax. Do you get the feeling this is all sliding sideways off the rails? Amber Ruddy is the Alberta director of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. That's the organization that conducted the poll of the... Uh, of the people who actually are the premier employers in Canada, the small and medium-sized businesses. And Amber Ruddy joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Amber, good to talk to you. Good afternoon. For, for the rest of the country listening in, what exactly is Rachel Notley's government's rationale for phasing out coal-generated electricity by 2030? The Alberta government is looking at doing this to save on health care costs and make sure that the environment is protected. Of course, Canadians and small business owners agree that we need to have environmental protections in place. The problem is that a lot of these plans are being accelerated at a much quicker pace than anyone anticipated, and there are trade-offs. Half of the power generated in Alberta for electricity comes from coal, so to take additional coal-producing facilities for electricity offline early is going to have a huge impact on business owners and their concerns. And simply put, the timing could not be worse. CFIB conducts a monthly business barometer about business confidence. Are people optimistic about the future? What are some of their constraints? And we've registered the lowest low we've ever seen in 15 years here in Alberta. And at this very precarious point in a recession, policy after policy is getting layered on. And there are a number of things within this government's so-called climate leadership plan that are giving businesses um, a cause for concern. 73% is the big number. Getting 73% of Canadians to agree on anything is a big number. And that, would I would imagine, also uh, includes small and medium-sized businesses. So clearly, the most active employers in the province of Alberta are speaking out almost unanimously on this issue. Is the Premier responding? At this point, the uh, carbon, carbon tax and some of the policies are being implemented on January 1st. We did see a leaked memo that suggested these policies would lead to 15,000 fewer jobs, a drop in household income of $4 billion, and it would lower GDP by 1.5% by 2020. This was something that the government said was premature. It, it didn't take everything into account. There's so many great benefits of it. So they released their own version recently that walked back those figures and said that the economy would be taking a hit here in Alberta by 0.5% by 2022. And, and that's still a concern because why are we pressing ahead with these policies when businesses are struggling? 
businesses are doing everything that they can to be conscious of the environment and, and to take actions to make sure that that happens. But adding another tax and following it up with regulations isn't necessarily the best way forward at this point in time. Employment loss is already a huge issue in Alberta, is it not? Absolutely. Just uh, this week, we put out our business barometer for the month, and we set a new record in terms of how many small businesses are looking to lay people off. 45% of Alberta businesses say that they will be looking at reducing their full-time staff complement within the next three months. And, um, of course, you know, in the, the normal business cycle, their, their insufficient demand for products and services is a bad situation. The worst situation is when we start to see major cost constraints of these ta- new taxation and regulation pieces coming in at, at this point. And that's what we talk about when we say that uh, the government is making a bad situation worse. What, what, what is even uh, almost comical is our government came out and saying their job plan is working. They're saying that, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the measures that they're taking, and that's not resonating with business owners. Business owners don't see that vision um, as, you know, something that's happening on the ground. They're the ones creating the jobs, not the government. So the government's objective then, I guess, was to lose jobs across the province, and that's why they're succeeding at their objective. Well, this government is talking about... I don't mean to be overly a... cynical, by the way. It's just... Yeah. Yeah, I know. Sometimes I feel like the bearer of bad news, but I'm going to keep repeating these messages until it sinks in with the government. They keep talking about needing a stable and reliable, cleaner electricity system. But the other word they're forgetting in there is expensive. Can we afford to make such drastic measures in short order? And I I think the appetite for this is is limited. Uh, The government has not made the case that this is the right direction to move in. And in fact, when we pulled our members, 99% want to see the full economic impact assessment before this this policy comes in. Is the business community, the small and medium-sized business community, taken seriously by the Notley government? Well, we have had a number of meetings to share the concerns, but uh, we haven't seen all of those concerns reflected in the policy. One of the measures that this government did take was to reduce small business corporate taxes as of January 1st when these environmental policies come in. The problem is that if you're not making money, you're not paying small business corporate taxes, but you're still going to be on the hook for everything that's included in this climate leadership plan. That's everything from the um, hike in taxes on propane, diesel, natural gas, gas. Um, so the amount of costs on, on one side of the ledger is going up and the amount of benefits, so, you know, they are doing a few things and we give them full credit for lowering small business taxes, but we don't think that that's enough to mitigate these these big public policy proposals. If the government doesn't pay attention, Amber, what's the fallout? A couple of questions here. Are you going to lose businesses because they simply will not be able to operate any longer because margins are tight? And will some businesses, maybe many businesses, be enticed to move to other jurisdictions? I know that in Ontario, I've heard from business owners who have told me that they're being approached by other provinces and, in fact, states in the United States to relocate. That's always a question that small businesses are considering. Where is the best place to uh, set up shop? And we have to remember, this is just one policy on a very long list of things that are hitting Alberta businesses. There's a $15 minimum wage coming in. Of course, we've seen uh, federal payroll taxes that are about to be high. Corporate taxes have gone up. Employment rule changes. The list goes on, and it's getting to a breaking point. So that's um, the case. People are deciding where to set up shop. What's uh, interesting is with this, Uh, phase out of coal proposal, the federal government has announced that they're mandating it nationally. And I really wish that our government would learn from the mistakes of other provinces and not go down this road. The costs are escalating very quickly. Just um, to pay those coal plants to shut them down early is going to cost us $97 million per year for 14 years. Then there's going to be costs to build the new renewable facilities. There's going to be transmission costs. And so this starts adding up quite quickly. And I I think the fallout, uh, it is going to be some people will decide to either shut down. Maybe they 
move to retirement or where they are in their career to figure out if it's worth it anymore. And others will consider moving jurisdictions. Deeply disturbing. It really is deeply disturbing. Jobs are already disappearing. Uh, businesses, small businesses, are operating on the margins. And now additional pressure in order to meet their the government's climate objectives. We're seeing what's happening in Ontario. We actually have a premier who's admitted to making mistakes only after the polls indicated that she's in desperate trouble with the electorate and that her government and her party could be decimated in 2018 because people cannot take it any longer. And yet, it seems to me in, uh, in, in Alberta, you're facing a government, you're dealing with a government that still has some time left in its mandate, and they're just they're just playing roulette. Well, if there was a economic case to have some of these um, things come online quicker, we would see companies investing in it. Exactly. But of course, the government is going to have to heavily subsidize these new renewable um, forms to be put on the grid, and it's it's not. Um, there is no financial case, and that's why they have to mandate it. You know, if, if we took a little bit more time, I think the innovative businesses and companies would come up with new ways to bring the cost down and, and to do this in a more uh, natural uh, time frame. This is, this is with our, you know, foot on the pedal, and, and we're driving right off the cliff. Yep, I hear you. Amber, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. Thank you so much. Amber Ruddy, Alberta Director of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Why don't we start with with uh, Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca, Linda Leatherdale, at Linda Leatherdale, uh, Vice President, Cambria, Canada, and at Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament. Where do we begin? May I suggest Fidel Castro, who our Prime Minister, our current Prime Minister, has described as a legendary revolutionary and uh, says he's speaking for all Canadians in a very laudatory comment about uh, the now-dead dictator of Cuba. And what I'm seeing in the way of response on email and what I'm seeing on Twitter hardly agrees with the prime minister of this country, Michelle Linda Catherine. Hello. Hi, Roy. Hello. Hello, Roy. So I want to make sure you guys were all there. We're here. As it were. Well, yeah. If you're talking about As it were. maybe not so much. As it were. We're yeah. physically here. <laughs> do, let's, begin with, let's begin with the death of Fidel Castro. Dictator. He, um, he harmed his people. He brutalized his people. And yet we have a prime minister who praises him in a rather laudatory manner, which is not, as I said, not being accepted by... Uh, by my listeners, either on Twitter or on email. So, why don't we begin with um, with Ms. Leatherdale? Well, it's actually insulting, Roy, quite honestly. And uh, I, too, have looked on all the social media comments, uh, certainly for out of the United States. There's, there's just, what is he smoking, Justin Trudeau? It, was this a parody or is this a reality thing that he actually is standing by his words? We have to remember that, of course, Daddy... Pierre Elliott was a very close friend of Fidel Castro, and I know as a boy he probably got to know him. But the atrocities that he has, um, his, his people suffer, albeit he might have done more for education and health care or whatever you might say, but you cannot excuse some of the actions. And so I agree with some of our other politicals who are now saying we need an apology. Catherine, people are angry. Well, frankly, I, I, frankly, I, angry. Totally. Anybody that knows the facts about what Castro did, he's a murderer, he's a despot, he, he jailed journalists and, and others, anybody that expressed an opinion he didn't like. Uh, it, it, it boggles my mind, and I've seen, I've, I've seen the action on Twitter. <laughs> um, it, it boggles my mind that uh, Justin Trudeau would have the bad judgment, frankly, it's bad judgment. I don't care what he knew as a kid. I mean, is he really not aware of what this man did? And if he's not, shame on him. It's disgraceful. Uh, yeah. Lauding this, this horrendous person. Go to Miami and speak to some Cubans there, and you'll get an earful, boy, about this, this murderous despot. Yep. And Ms. Simpson. Well, to have him 
the Prime Minister refer to Castro as a, you know, as a legendary revolutionary, I was, I really found beyond the pale in terms of his support. You knew, you know, I expected this to come up uh, because Castro came to his father's funeral, as you recall, in 2000. And, you know, I, I just can't believe, you know, he lauds the, you know, Chinese government and gets behind someone like a Castro. You know, I, I just don't know what he's thinking. Here's what, he, here's what he said. Fidel Castro was a larger-than-life leader who served his people for almost half a century, a legendary revolutionary and orator, Mr. Castro made significant improvements to the education and health care of his island nation. That's it. Unbelievable. Yeah, it leaves out, leaves out about 90% of the true story, for sure. If you're not going to exactly. criticize Castro, who will you criticize? Yeah, really. Well, it's frightening, and, and as Michelle alluded to, you know, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau has in the past said he ad- admires China's basic dictatorship and, you know, th- those kinds of comments. And, and really, uh, it, you know, this is Canada. I'm sorry. We, the vast majority of us just don't accept that kind of class. Although he claims to speak for all Canadians. <laughs> yeah, well, not now. Not right now. Yeah, well, no. How about some thoughts on the Pierre Trudeau Foundation, which Mr. Justin Trudeau says he's really separated himself from, but interestingly enough, at a private dinner for, attended by Mr. Trudeau, his spouse, and Chinese billionaires, after the dinner, I'm sure it was totally coincidental, a million dollars makes its way to Canada, and it's distributed. 50,000 of it is for a statue of Pierre Trudeau. 750,000 goes to... You guys know the breakdown of the million probably better than I do. Yeah. But a million dollars shortly after a private dinner where Justin Trudeau goes to his father's foundation, which Justin Trudeau, of course, has nothing to do with. (laughs) Are our fingers crossed behind our backs? His father's foundation, Roy, that's been up and... or the foundation with his father's name on it that's been up and running for 15 years. The timing really doesn't pass the smell test. It really doesn't. Catherine? Well, I guess there's this kind of stuff has been done by lots of governments over the years. It's always inexcusable, I'm sorry. And governments have different political stripes, so let's not you know, just be partisan about it. But I think the real hypocrisy is that the, the Trudeau government, when they came in, said, oh, we will never do that kind of thing. No, 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 no. That's what the other evil people do. And, of course, they're doing it. Here in Ontario, you know, where I live and where actually we all live now, don't we, right? Um, you know, the Wynn government pulled this kind of stuff, uh, and as McGinty did before her. But anyway, the thing was the stink got so loud eventually she had to change the rules. And we need that to happen federally as well, clearly, because... And, and unless we, the you know, we the great unwashed out here, protest this strenuously because the, the liberals are, are defending what they're doing. Oh, this is just what the other guys did. Yeah, but you, you guys uh, said you were going to be different. And, of course, they're not. So let's put an end to all of this cash for access garbage, period. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.